Welcome home and welcome to the Mount Carmel Ministries podcast. Today we pick up with Skip Sunberg on his third day of teaching at Mount Carmel back in 2009. spent most of the time talking about um, sectarian type of criticism uh, within the church type, uh, territorial church, and I gave three, if I might say so myself, unimpeachable examples. Uh, John Wesley uh, calling the Anglicans on the carpet for the slave trade. Uh, Bonhoeffer speaking about cheap grace to the German church in the 30s at a time when they could see the handwriting on the wall with this brutal regime. And then the third example was uh, Soren Kierkegaard, um, a brilliant philosopher and writer who calls into question nominal Christianity uh, on the basis of... uh, what he calls the Socratic secret of uh, the faith, God's will for us. The unexamined life is not worth living. We are to examine ourselves to get out of uh, simply being pleasure seekers and to make commitments in life, uh, commitments that involve sacrifice. Uh, Well, with those examples... um, Uh, I move to uh, uh, the definition of sect, as uh, Ernst Trelch has it in his great book. Uh, This book, of course, was written after Kierkegaard, so Kierkegaard becomes kind of an example for Trelch, how much he knew about, well, he did know about him, that's that's a fact. Uh, But Bonhoeffer and two others that I'm going to talk about know Trelch's argument very well. So let's look at the strict definition, if you will, of the sect. The sect is a voluntary society composed of strict and definite Christian believers bound to each other by the fact that all have experienced the new birth. These believers live apart from the world, are limited to small groups, emphasize the law instead of grace and in varying degrees within their own circle, set up the Christian order based on love. All this is done in preparation for and expectation of the kingdom of God. There's a lot in this word, sect. To be sectarian is to belong to a religious subgroup out of sync with the dominant religious power. Sectarians can trace their roots back to the earliest Christians, the Jews of the temple, the church type of its day, labeled Christians a sect when they first appeared, a designation that St. Paul acknowledged as he defended Christianity before the Roman governor Felix. But this I admit to you, says Paul, that according to the way... This is Paul's term for Christians early on, which they call a sect. I worship the God of our ancestors, believing everything laid down according to the law or written in the prophets. I'm one of you, but I have something else. Sectarians are forever profaning the temple. 
in defense of what they perceive as the true original faith. They're often judged as heretical. Indeed, the Greek word for sect is heresis, from which we get the word heresy. Dogmatic in belief, strict in behavior, refusing to accommodate to state and culture, sectarian Christians have been a significant force in church history. They include groups such as the Montanists and Donatists in the early church. Now, the Montanists were a charismatic group who thought the church was getting lax, received the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and uh, spoke out. And uh, they had three leaders, two of whom were women, Priscilla and Maximilla. And this caused all sorts of consternation. And... uh, they apparently were ecstatic in their practice. Well, there's a great story of uh, Wesley and Whitfield, uh, these two great itinerant preachers in the 18th century. And uh, Whitfield is preaching uh, out in a field, and there are four women, farm women, uh, right below him. And they start swooning and mumbling and shaking and fall down. And Whitfield is absolutely nonplussed by this. Well, you know, what's going on? So he writes to Wesley. John Wesley, who had more money than he did, was his elder, was his model, and knew everything. And uh, John, what the heck's going on? Wesley writes back, don't worry. There was a group in the early church called the Montanists, and they did things like this. This is Christian practice. They're responding to your word ecstatically, accepted. You know, those old camp meetings could get pretty wild and woolly. (laughs) Think of the radical reformers in the 16th century, the Anabaptists, the Mennonites, the Puritans, yes, the Lutheran Pietists, the Baptists of the 17th century, Methodists in the 18th, Pentecostalists in the 19th and the 20th centuries. Pentecostalism is the fastest-growing Christian movement that church history has ever known. Sectarians may take the form of separate denominations or appear as an unruly subgroup within territorial churches and mainline denominations, and they have a meta-doctrine, a shared doctrine. That is, that the that uh, they teach that the normal beginning of genuine Christian life is spiritual transformation, what Trelch calls the new birth. The particular theological defense or orientation that underlies this meta-doctrine may differ among various sects. Some, like the old Puritans, drew on the orthodox Protestant distinction between historical faith and saving faith. Historical faith was... uh, Um, the knowledge of the content of the creed in the Bible. Even the devil does that. In fact, the devil can quote the Bible backwards from Revelation all the way to Genesis, and you can't. But he didn't believe anything of it. Um, Saving faith is when it's in your heart. And in order to cross over from historical faith to saving faith, you must be able to stand before the group and give what? Testimony. Testimony. And then you are a a full member. Um, And uh, others emphasize an Arminian anthropology from uh, a theologian called Jacob Arminius of free will, free choice. 
that finally when you come to faith, it is an act of the self. God foreknows it. You were born in original sin, and this sin was washed away with baptism, but now here you are with your will. What path shall you take? Wesley was an Arminian. And then, of course, you have Pentecostalists and the like who speak about the anointing and the second baptism by the Spirit, something uh, by which you cross over and get to this, uh, this new state. Now, whatever the basis, the fundamental sectarian impulse is to preach adult conversion. The sect type consistently challenges the culture at large and Christians of the church type to take responsibility for their lives in practical moral terms. Generally speaking, sectarians are suspicious of government interference in the life of the church. They shy away from ritualized worship, objectification of the sacraments, that the sacraments work despite what, you, what your faith is, and they don't like a hierarchy in the clergy, a pecking order. Sectarians have a strong rebellious streak, which leads them to look askance at any form of convention. Now, Kierkegaard and Bonhoeffer were both Lutheran by birth, and they took up this sectarian impulse in their theologies self-consciously to combat the failures of the church type of their day. Under the impact of secularization, especially in Europe after the Second World War, other prominent theologians have found themselves reassessing classic sectarian themes as the churches become more and more marginalized culturally. Karl Barth, for example. This, at the very end of his life, the last thing he wrote, about 250 pages of small print, which for him was uh, small potatoes. He wrote thousands upon thousands of pages. Um, Bart argued at the end of his life against infant baptism as a detriment to the integrity of the church's evangelical witness. Sacramental incorporation he recognized as the cornerstone of the church type against this custom. Bart asserted that what the church needs is a mature membership, not determined by undiscriminating generosity and content with the maintenance of the way things are, he writes, how can the church be credible to the rest of the world so long as it persists in thinking it can pacify its concern for recruitment of personnel by infant baptism, which is neither responsible to God, to its own message, nor to those who live either externally or internally outside the walls. Like Bart, the great Catholic theologian Karl Rahner recognized that Traditional Christendom under a church-type organization was inadequate in a secularized world. What then should the church do, especially the Roman Catholic Church, which was so much wedded to, uh, to the church-type morphology? Rahner's proposal comes in the form of a prediction. The theology of the future, he wrote in 1970, will in a more direct sense than hitherto be a missionary theology. For in the future, the church will no longer be held up by traditions that are unquestioningly accepted in secular society or regarded as an integral element of that society. The community of the church will be transformed into a church made up of those who believe 
as a matter of personal conviction and individual decision. Personal conviction, individual decision, these are the hallmarks of uh, the sectarian. Now, in our country, the sect type has been the dominant form of Christian social organization from colonial times to the present. Those churches most identified with sectarianism in Europe, evangelical denominations such as Baptists, Pentecostalists, have prospered in the American religious environment. And one of those who studied this matter over 30 years ago was Dean Kelly of the National Council of Churches, a Methodist pastor, who wrote a book in 1972 entitled, Why Conservative Churches Are Growing. If I look back on my uh, scholarly career, whatever it is, um, this book is the single most important book I read. Uh, in 1972, of course, it was before I was born, but I read it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> now, <clears throat> Kelly's sitting there in the national offices. He's trained as a sociologist, and he sees the number of Assemblies of God and uh, other denominations like that, Southern Baptists, going up, while the Methodists and the Lutherans and everybody else are going down. It's a trend that began in 1965. By 1972, we got a pattern here. What's it all about? Well, he says this. As a Methodist pastor and officer in the National Council of Churches, he argued that sectarians, or evangelicals, as they're commonly called in this country, are more successful because they are better able to carry out the indispensable function of religion to explain the meaning of life in ultimate terms for their members, especially in times of crisis such as death. Amen. This is what they can do. And uh, <clears throat> there was another uh, um, fellow who followed him quickly on, because this book was dynamite among religious sociologists, by the name of Steve, yes, Steve, Bruce. That's the way he signs his name. Teaches in Scotland. And he says, a second uh, uh, matter that makes the sectarians um, uh, uh, dominant and healthy is their biblical literalism. And this is what he says. Listen now, boys and girls. <laughs> in sectarian churches, uh, what is taught to children in Sunday school as to the story and content of the Bible is the th same thing that their parents believe. Right? There isn't a byway through some religion department. Is this being a... <laughs> I suppose... Hand out this CD carefully, okay? There, it, there, isn't, there isn't a byway through, through some church religion department where there's a professor there waiting to uh, wreck the faith and say, you can't believe that literally in the Bible. And uh, you, ha you have to make a jump, a leap between something and then something else. Nope, the faith of the kids is the faith of the parents. And so the kids stay. And 
father's holy faith. And once again, this uh, Steve Bruce is a religious sociologist. He has no particular axe to grind. And uh, the book from which this comes, uh, Religion in the Modern World, was published, if I remember, by Oxford. It wasn't published in Waco, Texas, okay? <laughs> it's just looking at how things work. The Churching of America, writes Roger Fink and Rodney Stark, was accomplished by aggressive churches committed to vivid otherworldliness. Now, this otherworldliness brings with it a pronounced style of worship, which at least at first glance appears much different from those churches committed to formal liturgy. It's a style that makes the effort self-consciously to retain a simple, direct, eschatological orientation. And what I mean by that is an orientation towards the last things in one's life and where God is uh, taking us. Confirming Trelch's classic description of the sect, doing all things in preparation for and expectation of the coming of the kingdom of God. Now, this is depicted dramatically in a book by Donald E. Miller, a professor of religion at the University of Southern California, entitled Reinventing um, American Protestantism. Miller, in the book, a self-confessed liberal Protestant Episcopalian, studies three successful sectarian church movements in California, Calvary Chapel, Hope Chapel, and the Vineyard. At the time of the book's publication a decade ago, these three churches had spawned nearly 1,400 congregations in the United States and abroad, and they started in the 70s. Part of the power of Miller's book is that it represents a personal pilgrimage for its author. Whereas he'd thought for most of his adult life that the problem of the church was the rational one of dissonance, between faith and modern knowledge, he learned anew the old truth that the heart has its reasons that reason does not know. At Hermosa Beach, Southern California, one Sunday afternoon, Miller watched 70 new members give testimony and receive baptism in an extended worship service that was anything but an exercise in conventional Christianity. I quote, Several cited drugs or divorce as the precipitating factor that brought them to Hope Chapel. Others talked about a general feeling of emptiness and commented on the family warmth they found the very first time they came to Hope Chapel. For Miller, this scene disclosed the purpose of true worship going back to the very origin of the church. He writes, as they were talking, I flash back to another baptismal scene when John baptized people in the River Jordan, and I began to wonder if those first-century Christian converts might have said something similar to the 70 people I had just heard give witness. What Miller describes is liturgical practice. This is a baptismal service with testimony, right? It goes way back. On the beach, 70 people. I bet they had a microphone until the cops shut it down. And uh, 
of these people who are laid waste by modern society coming up and giving themselves to Jesus. Now, <clears throat> my argument is this, that the sectarian impulse, not the full type sectarian, but the sectarian impulse has got to be remembered. It's best able to preserve the fundamental purpose of liturgy. It goes against the grain of much conventional thought. The usual argument is that sectarians dismiss the liturgical traditions of the church as merely formal or external or skin-deep. In doing so, they court subjectivism. Now, there's no doubt this, this is a danger, but there's a danger to any Christian position uh, or style. On this, on this earth, we see through a mirror darkly, for crying out loud. We're always screwing up. If, however, worship is to help the ingathering of believers to learn by repetition the language of the divine realm in order that they may worship God properly, give testimony to Christ in word and deed, and be under no illusion as to who they are and how far they fall short when they stand before God and holy things, then the mere performance of ritual is not enough. True worship seeks the heart. Its purpose is to change us. What does the Bible say? I can't help but think of that great scene from the Gospel of John, Jesus with the Samaritan woman. This woman who has no mark of holiness about her, a Samaritan whose inherited faith of tradition does her no good because it is heretical in its denial of the first commandment. The Samaritans worshipped five gods on Mount Gerizim. They broke the first commandment itself. No wonder they were in trouble. This woman who should not be seen talking to a man, let alone a Jew in public, this woman asks this unconventional figure standing before her who dares to speak to her, this dangerous individual to the religious authorities because he's a prophet. She asks him a question about the external form of true religion. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on the mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. True faith is not in Jerusalem, not in Rome. It's not guaranteed through ordained ministry and the sanctioned worship book. Old Henry Melchior Muhlenberg said, if Episcopal ordination was enough, or presbyteral ordination worked, then we wouldn't have so many wolves among us. <laughs> but it is seen and heard when the unlettered, much-divorced Samaritan woman, or the former druggie on the sands of Hermosa Beach, gives her testimony to the people. 
Many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the women, woman's what? Testimony. He told me everything I had ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, It's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. Now, <clears throat> Miller's reference to John the Baptist um, is uh, not only germane to the event he witnessed, but also uh, suggests where I'm going next. In this post-Christendom age of contemporary Europe and America, it may, be us, may be, it may behoove us to take our bearings from the worship practice of the church in the earliest period of its existence, the pre-Christendom age when all Christians were sectarians, outsiders. With these ancient Christians, we may not readily identify. They were marginalized in a way that most contemporary Christians do not experience. There's a simplicity and directness to their worship, which centers on the effort to lift up the imperatives of Scripture and doesn't shy from the judgment of God. This gives their worship a disruptive quality that may seem strange, but it also may help us see liturgy afresh. Now, um, my first day here, I skipped over all that stuff that I just did the last two days because I thought it was a good idea. I don't know what I was smoking then. But I went back, because these are all pearls of wisdom, and I, I can't let anything go. <laughs> so, uh, you remember the other day, I went to Pliny's letter the first day, right? Governor Pliny, first outside description we have of Christian worship. And um, uh, let's pick up right there. Here's Pliny. Um, And this is what he says in uh, describing um, uh, uh, Christian worship. The whole of their guilt or their error, remember they were under attack, was that they were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day. Before it was light, when they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God, and bound themselves by solemn oath not to any wicked deeds, but never to commit any fraud, theft, or adultery, never to falsify their word, nor deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it up, after which it was their custom to separate and then reassemble to partake of food, but food of an ordinary and innocent kind. This brief description is the most precious and pointed witness we have to early Christian practice from an outside source. It allows us to see our ancient forebears in the very core of their corporate being, gathered together in secret, perhaps in a cave or ravine, calling on Christ in a hymn, repeating in each other's presence the Ten Commandments to learn what it means to walk the path to God in a world that belongs to the devil. To commit themselves to one another in trust, lest under persecution they betray their brothers and sisters in the faith, because that's what happened to them. They could only depend on each other. 
They lived under mortal threat, surrounded by enemies ready to betray them. In this context, worship and ethical behavior were united in one act. The purpose of worship was to strengthen the resolve of believers and forge bonds and mutual discipline with one another so that the members could endure attack. They knew the light had come in the world. They also knew that the world loved darkness and hated the light. From the same period, and I got uh, this far the other day, we have the didache, which has this same wedding of worship and ethics. The didache opens by reciting the Ten Commandments in their application to Christian witness. This is called the way of life. Turning from the commandments, rejecting them, is the way of death. Christianity is choosing the right way to live, which is pleasing to God, rejecting the way that incurs divine wrath. The instructions are specific and blunt. They grate on the ear of the modern liberal, shaped by the tolerant canons of the mainline church. And some of the things he says here are too close for comfort. Second commandment of the teaching, do not commit murder, do not commit adultery, do not corrupt boys. How's the Roman Catholic Church doing nowadays? Huh? Once they plastered that priest on CNN 15 years ago, the one who finally went to jail. Peterson, I think his name was. Uh, Chicken Noodle News goes into every hotel room in the world. And uh, there are people watching, you know. And uh, uh, nowadays you see a priest with a collar on, what do you think? The poor priests. Do not fornicate, do not steal, do not practice magic, do not go into so for sorcery, do not murder a child by abortion or kill a newborn infant. The simple and direct descriptions of worship in the early church, evident in Pliny's letter in the Didache, emphasized the ethical response of believers. And they were given a very provocative analysis from this old guy, Adolf von Harnack. Something about Harnack, he's one of my favorites. He's the son of Theodosius Harnack, a great Lutheran dogmatician who thought his son uh, was going straight to hell because his thoughts were heretical. Harnack apparently had a photographic memory. By the mid-19th century, a collection of patristic texts under the direction of a French scholar by the name of Minya gathered together everything we had, everything that didn't fall off the wagon from the ancient church in the Greek fathers, and in the Latin Fathers, okay? Um, by the time it's done, uh, it's pretty late in the uh, 19th century. In fact, there's still more to do. But Harnack reads this, and he has a photographic memory. So the whole content, written content of the faith, is available to him. He can recall it. So he writes this very provocative history of dogma, which caused quite a stir around the turn of the century. And at the very beginning of this, he says this, 
The history of dogma in the first three centuries is not reflected in liturgy. Liturgy is not about theology and doctrine. Lest you think that's an insult, it isn't. Because uh, Harnack thought that dogma, the official teaching of the church, was a work of the Greek spirit on the soil of the gospel. It subjected the gospel to intellectual abstraction, to pointy-headed intellectualism. And so he says this, dogmatic Christianity is always intellectual and is therefore always in danger that is knowledge it may supplant faith or connect it with a doctrine of religion instead of with God in a living experience. The gospel, he said, entered the world as an apocalyptic, eschatological message, not only in its form, but also in its content. Um, Christ faces each of us in his preaching with the crisis of decision. Who are we? To whom do we belong? Where are we going to go? Our eternal fate depends on this. The essence of the matter is a personal life which awakens life around it as the fire of one torch kindles another. Now, the mission of Christ was born in white-hot conviction of the risen Christ, his righteous kingdom, his imminent return, like a thief in the night. Early Christians prayed Maranatha, our Lord, come, uh, which is also found in the Didache, that Maranatha. Believers were warned in no uncertain terms to hold the faith and not fall away. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who has promised is faithful, and let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as, the, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. For if we willfully persist in sin after having received the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful prospect of judgment. Early worship complemented these convictions. They witnessed to an ethical preoccupation on the part of communities of faith that employed them. They were characterized by simple, direct forms whose purpose was to lead people to the kingdom that was not of this world. Now, scholars of a later generation, two famous ones are G.W.H. Lamp and J.N.D. Kelly, both Englishmen, who followed uh, upon Harnack's clue here. Worship was direct, ethical, simple. Um, sub-theological, if you will. And uh, they started to uh, look at the matter and uh, are very famous for studying it. So Lamp writes, In baptism, the faithful receive the guarantee of the promised inheritance. They are sealed for the final redemption of soul and body at the second coming of Christ. Through baptism, the faithful catechumen participated in the resurrection of Christ by means of potent symbolic enactment. He or she was seen to die and rise again, to die and rise with Christ, and to enter the life of the Spirit. 
Now, the earliest work we have um, in which liturgy, uh, the instructions for liturgy are written down are the Canons of Hippolytus, also called the Treatise on, uh, or also called the Apostolic Tradition. And uh, this goes way back. And as one scholar says, it affords to us a glimpse of the upper reaches of the great stream of the Christian liturgical tradition. The instructions concerning baptism in the work include the following. And when they who are to be baptized are chosen, who are set apart to receive baptism, let their life, what? Be examined. Whether they lived piously while catechumens, whether they honored the widows, whether they visited the sick, whether they have fulfilled every good work. The chosen catechumens are to have a hand of blessing laid on them each day until their baptism. They're also to undergo exorcism each day. Get the devil out of them. As the baptism draws near, the bishop himself is to perform an exorcism. I don't know if that'd work in the ELCA. We might catch something. There's a preparatory fast, vigil, and confession. The conferring of baptism is to take place at dawn on Easter Sunday after the all-night Easter vigil. The chosen are to disrobe. Now you know why there's a fast, okay? Looking good for the big event. Little children are first, then the men, last the women, who shall all have loosed their hair and laid aside the gold ornaments which they were wearing. Let no one go down to the water having any alien object with them. An essential part of the ancient liturgy of baptism is the renunciation of the devil, which we still have. This is baptism as exorcism. It recalls the experience of the Lord. John baptized Jesus in anticipation of the new age. To usher in this new age, there had to be battle. That's what the Bible says. Spiritual warfare with the powers of darkness. Thus we read it in the Gospels that after his baptism, Jesus is led by the Spirit in the wilderness to face the devil who he must renounce. Satan tempts Christ with, prospect, with the prospect of fulfilling desires that all human beings crave. The satisfaction of hunger, turn these stones into bread. The testing of God to elicit proof of divine love. Throw yourself down, for it is written, he will give his angels charge of you. The promise of earthly power and prestige. All these things I give you if you will fall down and worship me. Satan is not a haphazard force, but he's organized for destruction, and he knows what you want. And Jesus stands up to him and says, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Um, the New Testament teaches that Satan returned to do battle with Jesus. 
and continues to infect the world lost in darkness. His powers are enormous. As one scholar says, the figure of Satan in the New Testament is comprehensible only when it is seen as the counterpart of Christ. To fail to recognize this is to do violence to the essence of Christianity. Once again, look where this book is published. It's not in Waco, Texas. The devil is prince of the world, space, and time. He is the lord of matter and flesh. Satan seeks to pervert humanity as tempter, liar and murderer, a cause of illness and death, a power behind the storm. He attacks by possession. He can enter a person's heart. He is the master of sorcery and idolatry. Above all, he works to obstruct the mission of Christ. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the likeness of God. For we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, wanted again and again, but Satan blocked our way. Against Satan and his host, Christians are engaged in spiritual warfare. For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, the cosmic powers, this present darkness. Early Christians accepted spiritual warfare as the crucible of their faith. In battle against evil, the believer reaped the reward of salvation. Now, this is why Ignatius of Antioch, in a famous passage from his letter to the Romans, declares that he is eager to enter the arena and sacrifices life for faith. The arena, where Christian martyrs died for the sport of the masses, was the sand-strewn field of combat in the amphitheater that not only provided entertainment for the masses, but also symbolized the centrality of warfare in Roman culture. To Christians, the arena epitomized the true nature of the world. Satan is powerful in the arena. He blocks the way to Christ. And in his letter, Ignatius proclaims that he's willing to take up the challenge of the arena to gain Christ. He says, come fire, cross, battling with wild beasts, wrenching of bones, mangling of limbs, crushing my whole body, Cruel tortures of the devil, only let me get to Jesus Christ. This spiritual warfare is the context of all the early baptismal liturgies. And it is the context of the Roman Catholic baptismal liturgy up until 1972, when it was finally changed. Um, we read in uh, Tertullian that it looked like this. When entering the water, we make profession of the Christian faith in the words of its rule. We bear public testimony that we have renounced the devil, his pomp, and his angels. Um, people are to uh, um, uh, turn to the West and renounce the devil, the West where the sun sets, symbolizing the kingdom of darkness, and turn to the East where the sun rises, to accept Christ in their hearts. We have images in the iconography from the early church showing the baptized washed with a jet of water 
or having water poured on them. They could be entering a pool up to the waist or experience full immersion in a cisternal font, which looks like uh, this one from southern France. So this is the type of thing that they did. Um, the uh, waters of baptism call to mind uh, dramatic stories, both of rejection, in baptism you reject the devil, and of acceptance. What are uh, water stories of rejection? Well, the two that come to mind <laughs> are the flood. God repented of what he has made, had made, and gets rid of it. And also um, uh, the waters coming on the armies of Pharaoh and drowning them. But it's also uh, uh, the water in uh, Scripture symbolizes acceptance. So um, uh, when uh, Pharaoh says that all the boys in, uh, of the Israelites are to be killed, killed by drowning, by the way, uh, Moses' mother cast Moses upon the water, the very place where Pharaoh commanded that they be extinguished, and who pulls Moses in the basket out of the water? Pharaoh's daughter, to raise him. Um, uh, God uh, uh, sort of shoving his authority right into Pharaoh's face. Um, our baptismal font traditionally has eight sides, eight for the eight people saved in the ark. Um, all of this uh, imagery is very much part of uh, the early church. Uh, because, as I said uh, the other day, um, it was ancient custom, certainly among the Romans, to decide whether or not to keep a baby by the leader of the clan. And uh, if there wasn't room for the baby, if they had too many girl babies or there was something wrong with the baby, um, it would be abandoned or drowned. Uh, Christians don't do this. Um, we keep the babies. So uh, all this is very much part of um, um, uh, liturgical practice. And um, Lamp says this, he sees these ancient baptismal practices grounded as they are in vivid biblical imagery, preserving the literalism or fundamentalism of the common folk. J.N.D. Kelly writes that through the liturgical practice of the sacraments, in early centuries, as indeed in other epochs, whenever religion was alive and healthy, the primitive conviction of enjoying already the benefits of the age to come was kept vividly before the believer's consciousness. So liturgy has this preservative purpose. Your pastor may be loosey-goosey, but if things are right in the worship book, you'll get through it. That's the idea. Now, the early liturgy of the Lord's Supper also retained eschatological symbolism for the consciousness of the early church and its common folk. It was a heavenly banquet prophesied by Isaiah, um, through the Lord's Supper, the faithful were incorporated into Christ in such a way that they were able to enjoy, while still on earth, a foretaste of the supernatural life. It was a new covenant 
it was a sign of the new covenant forecast in Jeremiah, fulfilled in the blood of the suffering servant. From early on, it was a central act of the church. Now, as the church grew larger and became more successful and sought to accommodate itself to the world, the eschatological rigor of this early liturgical practice of the sacraments, especially the Lord's Supper, began to cause problems for the self-understanding of the Christian community and hence to uh, launch a very serious debate. The problem was this. As the church grew larger and sought to accommodate itself, it raised problems. Tensions arose between those who wished the church to be exclusive and disciplined and those who wanted to, it to be more inclusive and flexible and for whom pastoral considerations were making the old rigorism, rigorism difficult to maintain. Does that sound familiar to you? So um, this, this problem arises. And where does the problem get centered on? Well, it gets centered on their liturgical worship practices. Why? Because there they are. This is the way we do it. This is what we're supposed to carry on. Now, how do we figure out who we are um, when we're seeking to uh, open ourselves to more and more people and we're doing things like this? Um, well, this led to a, a series of battles, and uh, the battles centered on the question of holiness. As we know from the uh, Nicene Creed, um, we confess that the church has four marks, one holy, Catholic, and apostolic. And the earliest of these marks to appear in the creeds of the church was the second one, holy. And by holiness, um, people meant literally um, uh, that, that people were pure. Um, the church was compared to the apocryphal figure of Susanna, who would ra rather risk death um, than defilement by the elders. The church was the earthly Eden from which the apostate sinner was to be excluded. And when the early fathers talked this way, they meant nothing less than the empirical, visible society, the gathering of Christian believers. Um, this literal understanding of holiness um, appears in the instructions of the Didache concerning the Lord's Supper. Here we go. You must not let anyone eat or drink of your Eucharist except those baptized in the Lord's name. For in reference to this, the Lord said, do not give what is sacred to dogs. And then the invitation, if anyone is holy, let him come. If not, um, let him repent. Well, um, repentance... Uh, involved a problem. <laughs> um, how many times can repent? Can we repent? And for what can we repent? We read in Hebrews 
Therefore, let us go on toward perfection, leaving behind the basic teaching about Christ and not laying again the foundation, repentance from dead works and faith toward God, instructions about baptisms, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And we will do this if God permits. For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift. And, uh, uh, well, I'm sorry, I dropped the rest of it out. The devil must have made me do it. And then have turned away. The problem uh, was this. Um, You could only receive the Lord's Supper if you were baptized. When you were baptized, you received the Holy Spirit. Uh, The argument was, once you receive the Holy Spirit and are baptized, and then turn away, you can't come back in. And uh, the reason for this was, um, again from the Bible, the sin against the Holy Spirit. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. The church apparently accepted that people could have misunderstandings about Jesus and his teaching. The disciples certainly did. But once you receive the Holy Spirit, who allows you to say Jesus is Lord, and then you turn away, it can be nothing but a willful act. And therefore, you're out. Um, That was the argument. And remember now, we're in the early church, and I told you that some of this stuff is strange and far away from us. But just imagine now, these ancient people having the scriptures, they come across a verse like this, you know this verse, and you ask, what is this? What does this mean? Um, There is more bad news. 1 John, he who has the Son has life, he who has not the Son of God has not life. I write this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence which we have in him, that if you ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have obtained the requests made of him. If anyone sees his brother committing what is not a mortal sin, in the King James Version, a sin unto death, he will ask and God will give him life for those whose sin is not mortal. Here's a sin which is mortal. I do not say that one is to pray for that. There is a sin unto death. And uh, if you commit that, um, uh, you're not going to uh, uh, get another chance. Um, Well, if this is the case, then what does repentance mean in the didache, right? If anyone is holy, let them come to the table. If not, let him repent. But only the baptized can come. If you are baptized and have the Holy Spirit and have to repent of a sin, what kind of sin is it? Is it the sin against the Holy Spirit? Do you see the conundrum here? Well, this is what they debated. Oh, and by the way, to the woman who had committed adultery and was stoned, Jesus showed compassion, but he also commanded her to sin no more. Now, our knowledge of uh, the early church on this matter is meager and confusing. And um, 
I spent months reading around in the material that we have and historians who have studied it. It is the question of the problem of penance. And I want to set this up for you, and I hope you'll bear with me, because all of this directly bears on Martin Luther and what he has to say. In fact, many of the passages I'm going to be quoting, he knows and he works with as he takes up this issue in the 16th century. So this stuff, uh, Luther knew and quotes. That's where I'm going here, okay? The issue is penance. A process of repentance that leads to forgiveness for what? Post-baptismal sins. The church has the authority to do this. Where does it come from? Um, it comes from the office of the keys, which Jesus has, right? Um, he heals the guy um, after he forgives him his sins. Uh, the Pharisees are amazed. Uh, Jesus says, <laughs> what's more important, what's harder here, to heal somebody or forgive their sins? I can forgive their sins. I have that power. And they think he's committing blasphemy because only God can do that. And then Jesus passes this power that he has to the apostles. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain them, they are retained. So, the church then was understood to have the legitimate right to forgive sins in the name of Christ. The question was, how is this power to forgive sins, the office of the keys, to be exercised towards those who committed serious sins, mortal sins? And what are those sins? Are you ready? We don't know. We don't know. We know that certainly they included apostasy, adultery, and the shedding of blood. Uh, but there are sins beyond that. And uh, we don't know how far it goes. Just don't know. The earliest reference that we have to this problem is to be found in the second century document called The Shepherd of Hermas. The work is said to be by Hermas, a former slave who's in dialogue with an angel who appears in the form of a shepherd to give instruction. It consists of visions, mandates, precepts. Among the mandates is the command that a husband must take back an adulterous wife if she repents. But he only has to do it once. If she fools around again, or he fools around again, throw him out. Adultery certainly qualifies as a most serious sin, but the command is that the wife be given a second chance. The discussion turns to repentance and its relationship to baptism. Here we go. And Hermas said to the angel, I should like to continue my questions. Speak on, said the shepherd. And I said, I heard, sir, some teachers maintain that there is no other repentance than that which takes place when we descended into the water and received remission of our former sins. Right? You're baptized. Now you're free. Um, that's all you get. 
He said to me, that was sound doctrine which you heard, for that is really the case. For he who has received remission of his sins ought not to sin any more, but to live in purity. Since, however, you inquire diligently into all things, I will point this also out to you, not as giving occasion for error to those who are to believe or have lately believed in the Lord. For those who have now believed and those who are to believe have not, repented, have not repentance for their sins, but they have remission of their previous sins. For to those who have been called before these days, the Lord has set repentance. For the Lord, knowing the heart and foreknowing all things, knew the weakness of men and the manifold wiles of the devil, that he would inflict some evil on the servants of God and would act wickedly towards them. The Lord, therefore, being merciful, has had this mercy on the work of his hand and has set repentance for them. And he has entrusted to me the power over this repentance. And therefore, I say to you, that if anyone is tempted by the devil and sins after that great and holy calling in which the Lord has called his people to everlasting life, baptism, he has the opportunity to repent, what? Once. To such a man, uh, his repentance will, um, uh, if he should sin frequently after this and then repent, to such a man his repentance will be of no avail. So, you're living the high life, okay? Like St. Augustine did. You find the Lord. You are, baptized. you are baptized. Your sins are washed away. Everything that you did previously in, in your life, all 1,600 of those things. But now you're baptized. Uh, you're called to live a different life. You're called to be holy. How many chances do you have to repent? To fall, to make a mistake? One. One. One chance. According to that guy, that was the teaching in the West for 700 years. <laughs> <laughs> Any way you look at it, Storvig, you're in deep doo-doo. Okay? You got this? Now, in the East, in the East, the Greek-speaking church, this problem disappeared. Um, it disappeared in part because of a great theologian by the name of Chrysostom, who said that you could come to the Lord's table again and again. Good for the Greeks! And then they get uh, oppressed under Islam, and they're just trying to make it through each day. But in the West, we're in the West, this becomes the issue. So what did they do? Well, it was common practice to uh, withhold baptism until you are on your deathbed. Constantine the emperor got baptized on his deathbed. I'm ready to croak. I can't foul up anymore. Do it now. <laughs> well, then, did he ever get the Lord's Supper? We don't have any information that connects A and B there. I looked, and there's an Englishman by the name of Oscar Watkins who uh, wrote a two-volume history of penance in the 19th century, 
And he's the one on whom everyone is based. He, he looked through everything. It's an amazing book. And once I got this thing in my head, I'm an historian after all. I just love what people do. And here's the church caught in this tremendous pickle of one repentance. Now, I'll give you some other things that they... Well, how did they talk about this? Um, here's Tertullian. Tertullian writes about this. This is much later than um, uh, the shepherd of Hermas, uh, where in uh, around the year 220, he lives in Carthage. And he has this... The practice in the church is that you can repent after baptism what? Once. He doesn't like it. He says it's too much. Here's what he writes. God foreseeing, although the gate of forgiveness has been shut and fastened up with the bar of baptism. How do you like that line? Has permitted it still to stand somewhat open. In the vestibule he has stationed the... Second repentance, now once for all, because now for the second time, but never more. Now, the penitent who gets this second repentance, okay, um, uh, you know, one of the Bjorgis foul up. And, uh, well, this is, this is what you got to do, okay? The penitent... Um, is to lie in sackcloth and ashes, to cover his body in mourning, to lay his spirit low in sorrows, to exchange for severe treatment the sins which he has committed, moreover to know no food and drink but such as is plain, not for the stomach's sake to wit but the soul's, for the most part, however, to feed prayers on fastings, to groan, to weep, and make outcries unto the Lord your God, to bow before the feet of the presbyters, that's the pastors, and to kneel to God's dear ones, to enjoin on all the brethren to be ambassadors to bear his deprecatory supplication before God. So they would line the penitents up in a big group. And by the way, um, if uh, you fouled up as one of the younger Bjorgis, Tim, uh, your pastor would tell you, you have to wait until uh, you get to be uh, your father's age. Where is he? Okay? And, uh, well, maybe a little older even, because... <laughs> He's, he, he looks dangerous to me, your brother. Um, and, and when you're really, really uh, on the edge, now you go through this public uh, humiliation, which all the members of the congregation know. Get your forgiveness, get the Lord's Supper, and then uh, hope that you'll never have a dirty thought again. And if you, so if you did it young, you're your repentance would be postponed until many years down the line. Now, that's what they did. That's what they did. Now, I've been teaching at Luther Seminary for, uh, well, I started there 31 years ago. I teach church history. Uh, I never quite figured this out. And uh, you read a lot of church historians, and they ignore it. Um, we still don't know the list of sins, but this is what they were doing. Now, um, Oscar Watkins writes um, magisterially in his book, 
Nowhere in the West can the status of the penitent be twice assumed in a human life. Nowhere. Well, um, others speak about this. You know the name. Can I have five minutes more here? Is that all right? Okay. Um, St. Jerome writes to the Roman virgin Demetrius. Um, this is a woman of a young, uh, or a young woman of a rich family who's decided to take the veil as the fourth century version of uh, a nun. And her parents want to throw her a party because they're proud of her. This is now after the emperor had converted. Um, the church was no longer being martyred, but martyrdom was still held in high repute. And so people undertook voluntary martyrdom by living lives of sacrifice, and that's what this daughter does. So her parents throw this party and ask for letters of advice from the biggies in the church. Augustine, Pelagius at the time, and Jerome, the translator of the Bible into Latin. And uh, he writes a letter, and it is preserved. By the way, there's a rule in church history some of the most influential documents are short because they can be copied, things like letters, right? I always meant to uh, read War and Peace, and someday I'll do it. But it's the short things that carry all sorts of weight. And this is what he says. Let us know nothing of penitence, lest the thought of it leads us into sin. It is a plank for those who have had the misfortune to be shipwrecked, but inviolate virgin may hope to save the ship itself. For it is one thing to look for what you have cast away, and another to keep what you have never lost. Even the, apostles kept, even the apostle Paul kept under his body and brought it into subjection, lest having preached to others, he might himself become a castaway. Luther knows this, verse, uh, this passage very well, and he will respond to it. We'll look at that tomorrow. Um, now, um, leaders of the early church were much more confident in using the binding key than the loosing one. Now, I'm running out of time, and I've got to move forward because I want to get to Luther. So let me give you the short version of what happens. There are a series of whopping battles in the church over what makes the church. And one is in Rome under Pope Callistus. It's 220, around the same time as Tertullian. And it appears that Callistus has done something, opened the table. But despite what you might read in a book, we don't know what it was that he did but it uh, spurned a reaction from a man, a Presbyterian minister by the name of Hippolytus. So Callistus had to defend himself. The assumption is that he allowed adulterous members back into the grace of the church and to the table. And he said that the church is a mixed body made up of wheat and tares clean and unclean animals in the ark. And his opponent said, no, the church must be pure. And if someone commits that sin, you have to keep them out. 
Um, then uh, St. Cypri uh, Cyprian, this is around 250, allows back in the church those who had been apostate, who had uh, given up the faith uh, under threat of martyrdom. The uh, persecution ends. Um, Cyprian says, you can come back into the church. And the members who suffered didn't like it, but they come back in. However, he says, if the clergy is apostate, they have to be thrown out. There's another battle about 50 years later where uh, um, the church is in North Africa is assigned a bishop who's installed by another bishop who had been a traitor or an apostate during the last persecution, the Decian persecution. Whole bunch of people rebel and say, that ordination of that bishop isn't valid because the clergy have to be pure. And the Roman church said, no, the sacraments are valid, what? In themselves, not by the people who do them. That became the conclusion. And St. Augustine is the great architect of this position. So now it appears that the church is at the point where um, what makes the sacraments valid is God's promise in them. And the church is a mixed body of saints and sinners. What do you expect? Okay? So theologically, they're, they're arguing things out. But remember what Harnack said? Liturgy is not part of doctrine. It just carries on. What was actually going on in the church? People had one chance. And otherwise, they'd have to wait in a group. Can I have two more minutes? So what changes the whole thing? We'll look at this tomorrow. It's the Irish. The church goes into the Dark Ages. Rome falls to Vandals and Goths and Visigoths. Then the Vikings come, right? The only time when anyone paid any attention to the Norwegians. The Vikings come <laughs> and wreak havoc. And Europe just descends into chaos, and the Roman Empire retreats to Byzantium, retreats to Constantinople, and in the West, its life is nasty, brutish, solitary, and short. But sitting out there is Hibernia. Um, it's made up of uh, separate tribes, a curious people with an artistic tradition and a myth tradition, very vibrant, and a guy by the name of what? What's his name? Old Patty, who had a real problem. Um, we're told he committed some terrible sin. Apparently, most people think it's murder. He finds the Lord and forgiveness, and he brings the faith to Hibernia. And the Irish take to it like a duck to water, and it becomes the faith of the land without bloodshed. And the Irish now, apart from these Roman Western traditions, because the Roman church is, and it's retreated to the East, they start developing their own understanding of faith, and for them, like that, um, people can repent and receive forgiveness how many times? Again 
and again and again. Praise the Lord. Yep. The Irish send out missionaries. Who's the most famous of them? St. Columba. Okay. Comes back to Europe. Missionaries to Europe now. Bringing the faith to pagan tribes still around. And um, they bring with them penitentials and orders. They're pretty tough. But in them, they allow people, no matter what they do, as chronic sinners, to come to the table. And now repeated penance is in place. Here's the question. When the, the medieval church takes to repeated penance, the Reformation accepts the repetition of repentance. But for, for both the medieval church and the Reformation, Luther, they have the memory of what? The early church and its practice of one time. And uh, they're trying to understand what to do about this because they admire the ancient church and its power and integrity. And so this becomes the problem. And, uh, and so what I learned this year is this, and I'll leave you with this. Who is more lax or more forgiving of the repentant sinner? Uh, the medieval Catholics or the Lutherans? The answer is the Catholics. Uh, the Lutherans end up actually being tougher. But for both of them, people can come again and again and again. But when you come before holy things, you must what? Examine the self. So let's look at what they did tomorrow. Okay, thank you. Thank you for joining us today on the Mount Carmel Ministries podcast. We hope that you'll join us again tomorrow as Skip Sundberg continues his teaching.